If I remember correctly, this is the third year in the row I have been assigned the New Year's Eve weekend. <laughs> One more year and we'll have a tradition. <laughs> uh, but who needs another tradition? Uh, you will remember during our Advent series, we saw all those Old Testament passages pointing to Christ. And then we celebrated Christ's coming at Christmas. We're reminded in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Peter says to us that all those passages that look forward to that ministry of Christ and his suffering were inspired by the Spirit of Christ. It was Christ, even in his pre-incarnate work of a prophet, was giving them the words that they needed to write. And we saw that all those things in time and space and history have been fulfilled. And that, if nothing else, should make our faith in the word of God more certain. It's truth for us, it's truth for our time, and it is truth for all eternity. Because it is the word of God, and because it is that truth, I would ask you to please stand in the presence of God for the reading and the hearing of his word as we find it in Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he'd called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen, when it rose, went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another rock. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are convinced that these are your inspired words. It is as if you have spoken to us this morning through the written word. Now we beseech you by 
your Holy Spirit given because of Christ and what he has done, will apply that word to our hearts in a living way, that there will be the power of transformation and change to go forth from this place into our lives. And we ask and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I'm going to propose to you this morning that the coming of Christ is never a neutral event, whether it's his coming in person, as we read about this morning, or his coming to you in the presentation of the gospel, which I certainly hope you will hear this morning. So as we think about this and the fact that this is a reality, we dwell on this passage and think about the coming of Christ and its effect that it had on various people. There are three people in this passage that we're going to consider this morning and the effect that the coming of Christ had on them. And the first one that we're going to consider this morning is Herod. He was known as Herod the Great. Herod uh, was not a, a Jew by birth, but he had converted to Judaism for political reasons. And Herod was involved in a lot of intrigue. He was involved in supporting Anthony and Cleopatra against their Rome, I mean, against the war they had with Rome. And when the forces of Anthony and Cleopatra were destroyed at the Battle of Actium, Herod went to Rome and before Octavius was able to win favor with Rome and it was the Romans who made him, appointed him, king of the Jews. So Herod was very jealous for his power. And the record of Herod's life is one filled with paranoia and treachery. Anybody or anything that seemed to threaten him or his kingdom was eliminated. He eliminated a couple of his children. He eliminated a couple of his wives. So ruthless was he that Augustus Caesar, who knew him, said this, it was better to be Herod's dog than Herod's son. Now, as we watch this, and we watch this kind of a reaction, it wasn't hard to tell where Herod came down. He was great. He had built fortresses roads, aqueducts. He had brought literally urban renewal to the whole area around Jerusalem. And ironically, he was the one who rebuilt the temple. It was Herod's temple in which Jesus would do much of his ministry. It was that temple that he and his disciples observed from the Mount of Olives in all of its grandeur. And Herod, who built that temple to win favor with the Jews, would be the one who would destroy the one who was coming to build, if you would, the eternal temple, the house of God, in which we will dwell and which we would look forward to. And so it wasn't hard to tell that Herod the Great was a foe. And when we consider his reaction, and when we think about it, we have to ask the question, what does the coming of Christ to us really tell us about ourselves? 
Perhaps the passage poses the possibility that we could be a foe. And before you say, oh no, no, not me. I, I, I'm not that bad. It, it couldn't be me. I am not the foe of Christ. And before you push back on that too hard, remember what the scriptures say. In Romans 5, it says, For God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then in the next verse, it says, We were reconciled when we were enemies. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, We were enemies in our mind when Christ came to us. And then James in chapter 4 takes it beyond that. He says, in this life, if you choose friendship with the world, you're at enmity with God. And if you choose friendship with the world as opposed to fellowship and friendship with God, you have become God's enemy. So the dreadful possibility is that perhaps we fall in that bracket when Christ came to us as foes. I don't know about you, but I do unfortunately know about me. When I was a teenager, my parents would continuously try to persuade me to go to Sunday night youth group at the church. But none of the cool kids were there, unlike the youth group here at Providence. That's what Nate told me. And so I wouldn't go. I just flat refused to it. I think I preferred to be a friend of the world, and I wanted approval and inclusion by those that I envied and those that I thought were cool. Does that ring any bells for you? Even in your associations today, where you pick to go, what you choose to join, who you choose to be known by? I mean, even as this confrontation with Christ who comes and claims to be your Lord is on your ears, perhaps in your ears, there's that other voice of your sinful nature, of your old man screaming, no, no, this, not this, this is not for me, this is, this is not cool enough, this is not sophisticated enough. In fact, I don't even understand this. And we find ourselves in a moment, perhaps in a flash, to be a foe at the coming of Christ in our lives. So, in a way, after you look at Herod's life, his reaction doesn't surprise me. All Jerusalem was troubled when he heard the news because they had no idea what he was going to do. We later find out what he was going to do was something terrible, but something that God knew about and surely the scriptures had told us about. But even while that doesn't surprise me, the second group, the Sanhedrin, really surprises me. Astounding. If we're not a foe, then maybe, maybe we're a fool. Herod gets the news and what happens? He calls a holy huddle. He calls all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law. And he asks them, where is it? that this Messiah will be born. And they have the answer. They're on it in a minute, like a duck on a June bug. Bethlehem, that's the place where he will be born. They had all the information that they needed. 
They gave him the right answer. But they might have been right-headed. But they were truly wrong-hearted. They were faithless fools. They couldn't even be bothered to go to Bethlehem. But on the other hand, Pharaoh, I mean, Old Testament, New Testament. You're still with me? Okay. On the other hand, Herod did. He believed it and he acted. He didn't hesitate. And we see there clearly that knowledge in the head without grace in the heart will in fact make us a fool. You've got to have both. It doesn't work just to have knowledge in the head, no matter who you are or where you are. And this whole idea of how foolish they were with all that they had is a terrifying thought. It should be for us, for me, and for you, because we have seen this kind of thing happen over and over again. And this same group that was foolish at his birth would be foolish at his death. They handed him over without hesitation to be crucified. Now, how many of you uh, remember an old television series, uh, The A-Team, and uh, Mr. T, and Mr. T would say, don't be no fool. And pity the fool. Now, that actor who played Mr. T was B.A. Baracus, who later said that the B.A. in his name stood for born again. But the fact of the matter is, this whole issue of foolishness without grace in our heart is everywhere. Think about it. Many of you have first-hand experience with this at various levels. It's happened to whole denominations. The Presbyterian Church used to be the bastion of, of conservative, uh, believing theology. And in the 1800s, the slide began. It started when a guy named Augustus Briggs said there are errors in the Bible, and then the challenges mounted and mounted. And it wasn't too long before the, the anchor seminary, Princeton, gave it all up and contested theological ideas like the virgin birth, the resurrection, and all those things. And what was once great fell. And you and I are heirs of all of that and what God did even in the midst of it to rescue it. Providence is a daughter church of Park City's Presbyterian Church. And not too long ago, some faithful friends of Jesus at Park Cities said, this is enough. We must separate ourselves. And they did. And Park City's Presbyterian Church was established because they weren't foolish. They stood for the truth. That's not the only place. I mean, we've seen it close to home in children and grandchildren who were raised in the faith and all of a sudden go off to university and instead of finding there at a university a home for higher education, they find a fortress of foolishness and unbelief. And they come out of it saying, I don't believe that anymore. It's hit close to home, my home. Probably hit close to your home. And in fact, I would never quote Bill Maher regularly, but 
Uh, at this particular occasion, it seems appropriate. Bill Maher uh, went to an Ivy League school that was Cornell, and most of the true Ivy League schools would look down their nose at Cornell. But uh, he says, don't send your kid to college, it'll make them stupid. And he said, if ignorance is a disease, Harvard Yard is then the Wuhan wet market of education. The opposition is out there, and it proposes to be wise when it's foolish. It proposes to say the truth when it betrays the truth. Consider Harvard, it's betrayed its original charter, and it's literally trashed its own motto, veritas, truth. And so we have to consider the possibility that if we are not alert, and if we are not, if you would, on guard, doing foolish things, believing foolish things, is always a possibility. So in stark contrast to the foe and the fool, contrast to Herod and to the Sanhedrin, we have the wise men, which offers to us the hopeful possibility of being a friend and a follower of Jesus. In contrast to the foe and to Herod, they brought something else. Herod threatened death. The wise men bought the provision of life. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Have you ever wondered how that family supported themselves in Egypt? When they fled to Egypt, how they lived? I propose to you that was God's provision of traveling money. The gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh. And they were able to stay in Egypt until Herod died, and it was safe to return. And then they worshiped. They worshiped as opposed to the ignorance that the Sanhedrin had towards Jesus. They weren't foolish. They were wise. They believed the information they had, however they had it, whether it was from the prophets in the exile or whether it was from something they had read. They had believing faith, and they left their land, and they traveled, and they followed the star, and then they believed the revelation that they had in the dream from God, and it kept them from falling into the evil plot of Herod. And we contrast that. We find that they were friends, and that they were followers, and they did it by faith. So, they're out there, the three possibilities. Foe, fool, or follower. This morning I'm going to uh, break some rules of preaching. But that's okay, I know what I'm doing. And I'm sure my homiletics teacher is not listening. First, let me remind you of some of the last words of the prophet, the Lord Jesus, spoken to his disciples just before his death. 
spoken to his disciples here today as we enter 2024. In John 14, Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to myself so that you also may be where I am. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going, so how will we know the way? Jesus replied, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except by me. Jesus said, I'm coming back. I'm coming back for my friends. And I'm coming back for my followers. So, next Christmas, not 2024, but the next one when he returns, that Christmas, at his coming, what will he find you to be? A foe, a friend, or a follower? Skip the fool. Thirdly, some of you that may be golf fans know that uh, perhaps one of the hardest tickets in sports is a ticket to the Masters. Really hard. I have a friend in Alabama, and uh, we were talking, and we were talking about the Masters and how hard it was to get a ticket. People have been in the lottery for years and haven't gotten, haven't even smelled it. I said, how many times have you been to the Masters? He said, 15. I said, how'd you do that? He said, well, my brother was a personal physician of the king, Arnold Palmer. And every year, Arnold Palmer would give them passes to the masters that said, guest of a member. And they could go anywhere they wanted except the champion's locker room. Now, you, you know how hard it is to get a reservation in heaven? To get a ticket there? You can't buy it. You can't do enough to earn it. You're never going to be good enough to deserve it. It won't come your way by anything that you can do. It has to come to you from the king. From one who has the power to grant you access to his father's house. The one who is the way, the truth, and the life. So this morning, don't be a foe. Don't be a fool. To be a friend of the one who came to be the friend of sinners. This morning, I implore you, I urge you, I encourage you to receive Christ into your heart the Savior of sinners, and know that there is a place for you that he is prepared, and even is preparing in his Father's house. O oh Lord, keep us from follies of this world. 
and bind our hearts closely to the one who gave his life that we might be called his friends. And we ask and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.